Welcome to iPad Pros, the show all about using your iPad to be productive and get work done. I'm Tim Chen, host of the show. This is the wonderful thing about about having queues and so on, is that we're literally daily building the same app for Windows, for Mac, and for iPad. And so, um, obviously, we can't necessarily, you know, look at all of them with the same focus from a testing point of view every day and so on, but it's there every day, you know, the latest version with the latest features in it. And, you know, I have an iPad here next to my Mac on my desk, and I can build the, you know, build the current development version on it and take a look at it any time. And yeah, we absolutely do think about the iPad now whenever we're building anything new in the in the desktop version. And it's now, you know, part of every design consideration. Uh, how, how is this going to work on the iPad? Do we need to do anything special for the iPad version? And, you know, over the coming months and years, we, we anticipate, you know, kind of re-architecting the, effectively the whole app in such a way that it will be easier still to, um, to make things work on the iPad. Welcome back to another episode of iPad Pros. On this episode, I had the opportunity to speak with Daniel Spreadberry, who is the product marketing manager for Dorico. Dorco is a professional-level music notation and composition tool that came out earlier this year on the iPad. If you haven't listened to episode 121 of this podcast, I'd highly encourage you to check that out as well, where I do a deep dive with Robbie Burns all about the initial release of Dorico and Sibelius for iPad. In this episode, we dive into a bunch of different topics related to Dorico and even chat a bit about Dorico 4 that is due out very soon here, which will be a simultaneous release for the iPad and Mac. With that said, I just want to remind everyone that you can now financially support iPad Pros in two different places. First off, patreon.com slash iPad Pros. Get episodes early and with embedded MP3 chapter markers by supporting the podcast at any tier. Bonus content is also available at the higher tiers. You can also now subscribe to iPad Pros in Apple Podcasts. Apple Podcasts is an all-inclusive single subscription. So you'll get all of the bonus content plus episodes early by subscribing to the show in Apple Podcasts. By default, subscriptions are monthly, but if you go into your subscription settings in the Settings app, you can switch it to a yearly plan. My thanks to everyone that currently or has in the past supported the podcast financially. This podcast is not a quick one to produce, and your support is greatly, greatly appreciated. You can also support the podcast for free simply by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. No matter your region, it really does help. The reviews help send the right signals to Apple to show this podcast more in search, helping others discover the show. If you have a minute today, I'd really appreciate you opening up the podcast app and leaving a review. My thanks to everyone that has already done that. With that, here's my interview with Daniel, all about Dorico. Enjoy. Welcome to the podcast, Daniel. Thank you very much for having me, Tim. It's nice to nice that you got in touch to ask me to come on. I'm happy to come and talk about Dorico for iPad. Yeah, I'm excited for this chat. Uh, Dorico, when it came out, was kind of a revolution uh, for for me personally, as I was a film, um, or not film, <laughs> uh, as a kid, as a film composition asp- aspiring kid. Uh, but in college, I was just regular composition and... Uh, lived and breathed in finale all day long and dorka wasn't even a thing back then and uh, uh when i heard <laughs> just a twinkle in our eyes right? <laughs> probably not even a twinkle in our eyes <laughs> and uh yeah then dorko hit ipad it's like what's dorko oh it's like a full feature desktop composition app for ipad and uh yeah, uh, it, it's been game changing for me. I'm really pleased to hear that. I mean, it's when we when we started working on it, we um, 
our sort of our big hope was that it would uh, that it would actually open up the application to a, gr- a new group of users. Obviously, it's it's fantastic that we found so many of our desktop uh, Dorico users are also very interested in using it on their iPads. Um, I'm sure we'll talk a bit about that later on. But but for us, really, the goal was to uh, to find a new set of customers, and obviously, we would love it if some of those customers do also later on become users of Dorico on Windows or macOS. But we also wanted to deliver something that would be totally sufficient um, on its own terms for for folks who wanted to use the iPad as their as their primary device. And um, you know, maybe we're not perfectly there yet, but I think we're we've made a pretty solid start in that direction. So yeah, it's great great to hear that it's been that it's been a game changer for you. That's brilliant. Yeah, I'm impressed with version one very much. So it seems like all the major things I need are there and. Uh... I have an aging MacBook Air that was made in 2011, so I'm not spending a whole lot of time on that these days. So it's nice to have my main computer, the iPad, have uh, kind of one of the big missing pieces uh, for this platform uh, arrive. And uh, kind of before we get to that, can you kind of introduce your background? Kind of does the iPad play a role in your life, and what your background is with music notation software, and how you use apps like Dorico? Sure, absolutely. So. Um... Uh, yeah, I'm Dorico's product marketing manager. Um, I tend to think of myself more as the product manager rather than the product marketing manager. I actually have a, a colleague, Anastasia, who's far more proficient at all the marketing stuff than I am. <laughs> you know, these days marketing is so so much to do with. It's not just like write some copy and so on. It's it's all the analytics and digital marketing and so on, which which is all well outside my my area of expertise. So uh, yeah, my I, my focus is definitely on the product. Um, I've been working in notation software for oh gosh. 22 years now i think so pretty much straight after i finished my undergraduate degree um in music uh i went uh, i was actually a singer for a while i'm still a keen choral singer and choral conductor these days although of course that's been one of those activities that's been seriously curtailed by the pandemic it's just sort of starting to come back now but i i finished my undergraduate degree and i moved um to ely which is a city um, in the east of England, just north of Cambridge, where they have a very beautiful cathedral. And I was lucky enough to be one of the lay clerks, one of the full-time, well, not full-time, but one of the professional singers who were who were part of the, the choir there. Um, we always uh, had extra gentlemen. It was always gentlemen in those days. I'm happy to say there's, there's girls there now, but it was all boys and men in those days. But um, I sang there for a few years. And while I was doing that, you know, that doesn't take all day of course i was trying to find something else to do and uh, i did a number of odd jobs i was i was secretary to a social studies lecturer at one of the universities in cambridge for a while i was i worked in a a computer shop a high street computer shop fixing people's pcs (laughs) and then um and then got a got an email forwarded to me by the organist at the cathedral um telling me that sibelius software which was pretty new company in those days was looking for um a tech support person and a copywriting person and i applied for the copywriting job got the tech support job and that was in 1999 and i've been uh busily working away on notation software ever since basically in terms of my own musical activities as i say i'm a choral singer and choral director i i did because i did an undergraduate degree in music i i I do compose and arrange but not very much these days to be honest i i do the odd bit here and there for my choir um i've been conducting the same chamber choir for a long old time and i've done various bits and bobs with junior choirs and other things so i've often need to write little little bits and bobs but i haven't written anything anything new seriously for a long long time i find that my creative energies these days go almost entirely into 
into Dorico, uh, which I've been working on since 2012. So that's nearly nearly a decade now. So first sort of 13 years of my career, I was working at Sibelius and went up through tech support and then became, I was then responsible for writing the documentation. And then eventually um, the founders of the company, uh, Ben and Jonathan Finn, kind of tapped me up to, to sort of train me up in product management, although we didn't call it that in those days, but um, I became the product manager for Sibelius around the time of Sibelius 3. Um, and so I was then the lead kind of designer and what have you on Sibelius up to Sibelius 7, working in collaboration with with the incredibly talented team that Ben and Jay had had built um, around themselves then. And then, of course, Sibelius was acquired by Avid in 2006, and we all hung around there for a long time uh, after that, until finally in 2012, they, they gave us the heave-ho. Um, and so at that point, we were incredibly lucky to be picked up by Steinberg, who gave us the opportunity to build something new. And so, yeah, nine years now. It was just literally um, on Friday. We, it was our ninth anniversary of starting at, at Steinberg, and uh, yeah, it's been it's been great. And in terms of the the iPad itself and how it fits into my life, I did buy an iPad right when they first came out, um, and that was also around the time that we had my wife and I had our first child, um, our daughter Amelia, who's eleven now, and that was I think the iPad came out the same year that she was born in, in yeah. twenty ten, and we we. You know, we've we've always been a kind of multi-iPad household, but I must say that I haven't tended to use it much for creation work. I've used it a lot for, you know, for reading, for browsing, for playing the odd game. Obviously, it's played a pretty major role in our <laughs> children's life <laughs> when we need... <laughs> when we need to do something else and uh, can't be uh, giving them absolutely full, full attention every minute of every day, um, but we did back in the back in the old days at Avid, we did write a, an, an iPad app right at the beginning of the iPad's life, just before we left there, which was what became known as Avid Scorch. Um, we wrote that before we were before we left Avid, so we kind of got in pretty early w- with the iPad um, and thought that we would also do the same once we'd got to Steinberg um, and we were building Dorico, but it obviously took a lot longer than we expected to actually really start working on it in anger. But I think that now that we've got, you know, I think I didn't get a new iPad myself. Uh, I got bought one for work, uh, I suppose, about this time last year, actually, once we really started working on Dorico for iPad in anger. And the difference between the old iPad mini that I'd been using, which was, I don't know, I can't remember how old that is, probably five or six years old, and this iPad Air that I've got now. I mean, wow, the iPad Air is an absolute beast of a machine it's so powerful and the magic keyboard and the and the magic trackpad is phenomenal and of course the pencil i did i had bought a pencil already for a sixth gen ipad that we okay. bought again i bought for my wife a little while ago um with the expectation that she would use it for some of her photoshop and lightroom stuff which she did a bit but i think she's um i mean maybe like m- myself actually i've been so wedded to mac os for you know, 20 years or whatever, that actually, even though I think the iPad is a is a phenomenal device and, and it is really cool now being able to stick my iPad on the piano downstairs, you know, just on the music stand. It's so much easier to do that with an iPad than with a MacBook and, uh, you know, noodle around with, with Dorico in, in that environment. That's been phenomenal uh but i i would say that still i'm i'm still a more of a more of a mac guy than an ipad guy but you know arrayed around me on my desk here i've got three <laughs> macs two ipads you know it's yeah it's pretty silly and a pc under the desk so i i kind of have no shortage of of devices that i could that i could be um using at any given time and i do still tend to gravitate towards the mac uh just because that's where xcode is and you know 
bigger displays and all oh, the rest yeah. of it. But obviously, no, the, the iPad <laughs> is is coming along so quickly. Um, and in fact, of course, it was the the fact that Apple decided last year to transition their Macs over onto the same silicon that's in the iPads that was a again a sort of one of the final kind of kicks up the backside that we needed to really look again seriously at our ambitions of taking Dorico to the iPad because after all if we were going to be having to run Dorico on these uh, processors on the desktop then there was not really apart from all the difficult software technical reasons but there wasn't really any <laughs> intrinsic reason why we could why we couldn't do that on the iPad as well so we we had to get into it yeah uh, I wanted to just bring up arranging and how I, I used to just do this in high school, and it seems like that kind of stuff would be a lot different these days with, I think there's like apps that can actually scan and digitize to get you roughly there of printed music. So like, I remember in high school going through these scores and like hand inputting everything. Is that is that scene evolved where people are scanning in these things and working from from those now instead of just doing this this hand entry for everything? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of apps that I that I really enjoy using that can help with those sorts of things. One of them is is PlayScore, which is uh, developed by a chap actually in in Cambridge, a gentleman by the name of Anthony Wilkes, and he's been working on optical music recognition as a kind of as a problem, as it were, for 15, 16 years now. And originally, he he imagined that he was going to be working on that um, as a technology that he would then kind of license to other people. I think he has licensed it to a number of people. Yeah. But as a kind of as a shop window, he made his own app, and it's phenomenal. You know, it works. It works like magic. You you basically boot up the app, you hit the camera button, you take a a photo of the page of music. It can obviously de-skew and all those other clever things that you know phones can do these days, or or people can do to with with phone cameras to, you know filter it and de-skew it and de-rotate it and all these things and and then and then literally seconds later you can be listening to that piece of music huh. and uh with PlayScore you can also export music xml and the other app that's similar is it's a bit more of a general purpose music app and that's music um which of course is a overall sheet music library app um but you can also now with a feature called live scores in music you can you can take a photo and again it's got actually music's one is kind of a different approach is kind of ai machine learning type approach whereas Anthony's approach in PlayScore is is kind of a bit more so-called, you know, traditional the approach that has been you know, kind of academically pursued for for a decade or more. Uh, so there's two different approaches. They have different strengths and weaknesses, but certainly, you know, you don't you don't need to input the music by hand anymore if you don't want to. Um, and certainly, I think that the the ability to just literally take a snap of a piece of music with your camera and then literally seconds later play it back is is just phenomenal. Not only for arrangers, but for anybody who just wants to. You know, it's just a way of bringing that sheet music to life in a way that obviously would have required you to be able to sight read it before, yeah. and that's um, that's really pretty cool. Uh, and again, it's just having these supercomputers in our pockets is uh, or on our desks is is just it's, yeah. <laughs> We're living in the future, man. It's crazy. I know, right? <laughs> How does the technology handle multiple parts? Like if it's a orchestral score, is it able to you know figure out this is a different instrument and different line? 
I imagine you might have the input what instrument it, it belongs to. Yes, I've I've only tried it for my own purposes with solo piano stuff and and choral stuff, yeah. which it's done pretty well to be honest. Um, I must say, uh, so I haven't really like I haven't pulled out any of my old study scores like my old Brahms symphonies and so on and and whacked them in front of the camera. So I'm I'm not 100 percent sure how it works, but I think in principle there's enough you know resolution there in terms of it being able to read all that stuff. You know, a, a big page with lots of staves on it, it can read it fine. Uh, so I think I think it will probably work okay, but because I haven't personally had a need for anything more than you know, as I say, doing something for one of my various choral jobs, right? Um, I haven't really needed to try it. But um, and I also do confess that I, I I often will type something in by hand because I'm already sort of half arranging it by the time I get to the computer, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. So I've already you know I want to get the the lyrics and the and the melody in, but I've probably already in my head started uh changing it from the original so i I don't often go all the way back to to a a piece of paper and kind of reproduce that first and then and then do it but but these tools are brilliant they really are and they get better and better Uh, of course music's one actually uses the data that um you know to that you provide to get better uh whereas PlayScore kind of requires um anthony to to make changes in his algorithms and so on but but both of them are advancing uh, and of course there are others too I, I haven't used them recently but neurotron who make photoscore for the desktop also make an app called notate me now for the i for the iphone and i think the ipad and that works um that can actually read handwritten music, for example, which neither of the other two uh, try to do at the mm. moment. So, yeah, um, yeah. So there's there's plenty of uh, plenty of opportunities to kind of get music in um, through the camera or through the pencil. Um, and yeah, I think one of the things that's coolest from our point of view about being on the iPad is that also the the sort of the sharing mechanism that's that's sort of core to iOS means that it's those workflows that involve multiple apps or even if they're from different manufacturers it's it's just such a natural thing it's like it's like you know meat and drink to ipad users they expect to be able to share something from one app to another and for that app to be able to do something sensible with it and so it's been really fun being able to actually participate directly in that ecosystem a little bit over the last few months right like if you write your music in Dorco, you can send it the four score and then perform it with that same tool. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah As I was thinking about uh, the iPad, I wish the Apple watch could talk directly to the iPad. So the, I could have like a metronome on my wrist that syncs with four score in some way, but I don't think that's yet uh, possible. <laughs> I, yes, I would certainly from time to time, I would really find it useful to be able to have my watch tap me on the wrist metronome styly. That would be that would be handy. I wonder whether somebody's at, I've never looked in the watch app store. I wonder whether somebody's done I that. I think there are standalone metronome apps, but it'd be yeah, really right. cool if you could sync it to where you are in the music. So it kind of like, yes. adjust <laughs> like, like a click track. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it sort of surprises me they haven't done that in um, in Hollywood for their recording sessions and so right? on. Because, yeah. of course, you know, those performers always have, like, what, at least one ear covered by the uh, headphones. They can hear mm. the hear the click track. And, yeah. yeah, they could instead feel it through their through their wrists. With Dorico, um, we did a deep dive on this podcast, Robbie Burns, a couple months ago. Um, for those that haven't listened to that episode, can you kind of walk us through some of the fundamentals of Dorico? Like, who is this app for? What is your guys' approach to music notation that may be a bit different from the other solutions out there, that kind of stuff? Sure. So, I mean, like you say, Dorico is a a music notation app, but I also like to think of it as a composition app. I think that um, right from the beginning when we started building Dorico, it was really important to us that it would be 
useful to people as a composing tool. Um, I always use this same tired old analogy, so I apologise if people have heard me say this before. I'm going to say it again. Oh, my cat's just arrived. <laughs> <laughs> Apologies if we get meowing now. Okay. Um, I've always used this same tired analogy, uh, so I apologise if you've heard it before, but that other music notation apps tend to be um, like a typewriter, and Dorico tries to be more like a word processor. In other words, it should be easy in these applications, like it is in a, in a sequence or a digital audio workstation, to change your mind and to make different decisions in your compositional process as you go along. But actually, most of the existing notation programs are pretty rigid in their approach. Once, once the music goes in, it becomes fairly concrete. Um, and so the, the big goal with Dorico right from the beginning was to make it a much more plastic application in as much as the results should be mutable uh you should be able to change your mind about anything at any time and suffer as little as possible in terms of negative consequences from that and so that that actually poses some interesting design challenges for us as as we're working on the app because it needs to be possible for you to um as i say make any decision at any time effectively and, and have the app respond positively so that led us to a fairly fairly fundamentally different way of modeling music um in the app than in other apps uh so i won't go into all the details but the the basic sort of principle is that um music in dorico is arranged in uh fairly sort of flexible free flowing things called well called flows um and flows themselves are made up of, of streams of music where it's kind of stored in the way that we listen to music so it's all about note durations and their positions in time rather than necessarily exactly where they are in the bar or even specifically how they should be notated the idea being that you can kind of impose a rhythmic grid or a, a notational grid onto that music and have dorico kind of transcribe it really in the way that something like a sequencer will do when you play in live but dorico is actually doing that for everything that you input whether you play it live whether you click it in with the mouse you know when you when you choose a half note for example and you decide to input it dorico doesn't input a half note like sibelius or finale say would instead it inputs a note that is a half note in duration um, and then exactly how that note will appear will depend on exactly where it is in the in the metrical um grid that you've assigned you know is it halfway through a four four bar in which case you know maybe it's allowed to appear as a half note maybe it has to appear as two tied quarters depending on what the rest of the rhythmic context of that bar is and then imagine that decision being made for rhythm and then make that decision for pitch and make it for accidental spelling and then make it for page layout and then and on and on and on and so the idea is that basically dorico is kind of like a um, like an assistant who understands your musical intention and is able to then turn it into um, legible, clear music notation and in such a flexible way that you can remake that decision as many times as you like and the result will always be legible and suitable for, for giving to a live musician to play from. Uh, the basic sort of idea being that the more the program is able to do for you automatically, as long as it's something that you would have chosen to do yourself, the better it is, um, the more efficient it's going to be for you, the quicker you're going to be able to get the result that you want. And I think that philosophy really does translate especially well to the iPad because um, it feels like without all of the um, extra modalities, that, you know, obviously you can use an iPad with everything, MIDI keyboard, computer keyboard, external mouse, external display if you want, all this kind of stuff. But if you want to use the iPad on its own, 
in order to uh, to produce a result. I think the closer that the software can get you to a to a legible, workable result without you really having to put in any of the hard work yourself, the better that's going to be. And and I think that that kind of core design of Dorico that it should take your input and try and interpret it in a musical way and then produce something that is graphically as clear as possible. I think that really, really works um, on the iPad especially well because it means that although if you subscribe to the uh, to the iPad version you can get at the graphical editing tools in engrave mode and so on, hopefully you almost never need them because Dorico is is making smart decisions about your inputs and turning it into beautiful sheet music automatically yeah i remember back from finale days uh 2010 is when i kind of stopped writing for a while and uh i remember if i'd enter like say a half note towards the end of a a measure and uh, there wasn't room for it it would just mark that as red like the color red and i'd have to fix it because it was too long (laughs) but dorco just kind of Oh, let's move this to the other part, then the next measure, and it just all works out. Exactly, exactly. It, it really is, you know, try to put as few barriers in your way. You know, trust that you know what you're doing as the as the arranger or the composer, um, and try to uh, allow things that maybe don't make huge amounts of sense as a transitory state. You know, one of the things that um, when we were working on Sibelius for all those years, that people would often complain about was the fact that if you had a a tuplet at the end of a bar and then you needed to kind of move that by some amount you know you basically could never split a tuplet by a bar line um hmm. because the program just kind of couldn't really have any you know a tuplet is itself a container a bar is a container and you can't split one container over the boundary of another container so dorico really doesn't use any sort of container type approaches at all really um tuplets do kind of exist in the streams that make up the flows but bars are just imposed later on so we decided that we had to solve those sorts of problems it wouldn't be acceptable it would it would be too much of a barrier to this idea that you are as the composer or the arranger you're kind of in command of what the app should be doing um and if you want to move uh, an eighth note tuplet by you know by a whole eighth note, which means that you've now got two sixteenth tuplets either side of a bar line, it should be able to handle that. Um, and so we we work very hard to make sure that kind of underlying engine and all the editing that you can do of the music um, in those low level streams that that it just gets out your way as much as possible. And if you know if you want to insert that so that it crosses the bar line and then insert another note so that it no longer crosses the bar line again, it can you know, reform into a single eighth note tuplet on the other side of the bar line, and it does that automatically. And, you know, as I say, sequences and and digital audio workstations, to the extent that they have this kind of notational transcription stuff, they can do these sorts of things as well, if they even have the concepts of tuplets, for example, which, which some of them don't necessarily. But there's never been a notation program that gives you beautiful publication quality results, but also gives you this kind of freedom in terms of how the music is actually malleable by you in the process of writing and arranging it. So, um, yeah, it was something that that took us years to do when we started working on Dorico. Um, and so I think that's, that's one again, one of the nice things about having all of that investment kind of in the bank, as it were, is that when version one of this app comes out for iPad, of course, it's actually more or less equivalent to, to version 3.5 of the desktop app. In fact, it's 3.5 plus some extra things that haven't appeared in the desktop version yet. Yeah. And so as an iPad user, you're actually benefiting from 
from you know eight nine years of development work rather than one and so it's uh yeah it, it's a pretty rich um, a mature environment even in even in version one on the ipad and this kind of grid you talked about earlier it's kind of it's kind of really nice not to have to enter rests instead you just enter where you want the notes on the grid and it'll just put the rest in for you and that kind of goes back to what you're talking about there with the, the flexibility uh when you started when your team started creating dorco you guys came from sibelius and um, they had the staff reduction there. <laughs> and, you know, Sibelius is such a old application, and there, a lot of stuff has built up over the years. Um, how freeing was it, was it to have this clean slate to be able to start here and build this app that could easily, I should say, fairly easily be ported to iPad because of this clean slate? Uh, I don't think Finale will ever get there just because of all the cruft they've built up over the years, that, that kind of thing. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I remember when, when the team at Finale did produce a, an iPad app for a brief sort of period of time, again, early on, kind of 2011, yeah. 2012. Um, and I think that, you know, in, in lots of ways, they, they would be able to do it if they, if they put their minds to it. Because I think that although, you know, Finale tends to move slower, or at least appear to move slower from an end user's point of view than, than some of the other apps, I don't think it's because they're sitting around twiddling their thumbs. I think it's actually because they're working quite hard to maintain that old code right. and I get the impression I'd, obviously I don't know much about the internals of, of Finale I've, I've been lucky enough to meet a few of the people who work on Finale over the years but uh, so I'm certainly not uh, an expert or anything like it but I get the impression that they've always tried to use the native toolkits and things on, on both of their platforms so I think for them it's more about um, their strategy lies in a different direction rather than that it would be Sort of. I mean, obviously, it would take a lot, a huge amount of work. Nobody's saying that it's easy to make any of these apps, and I'm sure that's no. true for the team at Sibelius as well. But I think that they've already identified that the web is is where their where their future lies. Mm. Um, and it, again, it's sort of hard to hard to disagree with that in the on the principle that you know something that you build for the web ought to be able to work on as many devices or more devices than something you're building for Windows, Mac OS and iOS. So um, I think on, on one level, I think that's that's very smart. But to, to actually answer your question, which was, was it freeing to be able to kind of put down all the baggage that we had been sort of accumulating over years of working on Sibelius and start again? I mean, obviously, yes, <laughs> but also no. <laughs> yeah, because you guys have probably learned <laughs> quite a bit over the years. And it's like, what do we actually need for a great just first experience and from there build something else, you know, from there build the extra things? Exactly, exactly. So, you know, I think one of the things that people in the in the sort of software development business talk a lot about as a worry is this thing called second system syndrome, um, where, you know, you get a team of people who've, who've built one complex system and they get to the end of building that system and they go, wow, you know, OK, great. It does this and that and the other. And that's really fantastic. But look at all these things that we did wrong next time. If we ever had to build this again, we should make sure that we don't make this mistake, don't make this mistake. We need to focus more in this area. And and the danger, I think, um, that you always have to be aware of, and I dare say we, we fell into this pit, this sort of trap a number of times. But, you know, even though you know all the things that you would do differently, what you can't allow that to do is to then make your new system, like, totally over-engineered and solving the wrong problems and all the rest of it and i think that is a real that is a real challenge for a team that has kind of devoted i mean you know i'd been there as i say by that stage 12 13 years and some of the programmers have been there even longer 
what Graham, who's uh, who's our sort of most senior developer in, in the team now, you know, he'd been at, at Sibelius for I think a year or maybe even two years before I got there. So, you know, that these are people who've devoted huge amounts of their creative energy and their professional life to building these things. And then actually it's very daunting to them be, I mean, it's, yes, very exciting and a huge opportunity and, and one that teams just don't get very often because certainly if we'd stayed at Avid, there was no way that they were going to say a little bit later on, hey, you know, do you want to build something completely new? We'll just wait for five years while you go away and do that. You know, it, it just wasn't, that was never going to be a thing that would happen. Yeah. Um, so from that point of view, it was an opportunity that, that teams get extremely rarely, you know. And so from that point of view, yes, very, very lucky to be able to do that. But at the same time, the um, the downside of that is that, you know, you have to build everything again. Yeah. And some of those things are, are very, very difficult to build. But I think that, you know, I do look back on the time that we spent early on when we were at Steinberg, you know, before we even had computers yet, you know, we just had some whiteboards in the temporary offices that we were in. Um, and we, we could sit around as a team and, and sort of dream and dream big in terms of what, what it was that we wanted to achieve um, and the ways in which we could do things differently. And I found that even without really, I mean, obviously we, we knew a little bit before we left um, that we were going to be going to Steinberg, but we were very busy doing the things that we had to do to sort of hand over the stuff that we were leaving behind to the team who were taking it on. So it's not like we were all, you know, sitting around for a long time before we got there. But what was really interesting for me personally was that when we sat down in that circle with those with those chairs and those whiteboards, you know, in, in early November of 2012, a lot of what we've built since then was already there. You know, it was kind of like we, we had, in a funny kind of a way, been designing this software in our in our minds as we had been compromising on various decisions and not being able to do things in certain ways because of the constraints of the system we were already working in um, and what's been really exciting over the nearly decade since then is that you know i think i think the vision that we had has been has been pretty good uh, obviously we've, we've had some course correction along the way you know everything changes in the space of nine years so if mm-hmm. we'd you know, imagined that the thing that we thought we were going to build in 2012 was exactly what we were still building in 2021, that would probably be a worry because it would yeah. mean that we weren't taking into account the changes of musicians' lives and technology and all the rest of it. But if you sort of take the take the big picture look at it, um, what we outlined to each other in those early kind of months before Christmas of 2012, before we got computers and things and started actually, started, you know, in doing some initial experiments with actually writing code and algorithms and things what we've built up to now um gets closer and closer to that to that vision uh with each new release and you know i think that we we have been guided by that initial period of a few months where we we didn't have to actually be producing anything other than ideas and the vision for the app they've really really stood us in in good stead because as a group we were able to really really get united around one set of ideas about how this app was going to be was going to be built and what it would mean for our eventual users um so yeah i mean it what a what an amazing opportunity we were given by steinberg i'll always be grateful to them for that and i hope that we are paying them back with the um with the product that we're building for them yeah so what kind of things has the team been able to add over the years you're now at 3.5 would have been the big kind of milestone additions to the app since it initially came out yes i mean we've done i was 
it's been a while since we've done a desktop release now. I think the last release was in February this year. But but basically, up until we released 3.5.10 or whatever it was in, in June or July of last year, we'd, we'd basically been roughly running an average of one release every nine weeks since October 2016. So we, we really cranked out an amazing amount of stuff over that time. Um, and, you know, obviously version one was very much focused around this idea about the core workflow, this fact that Dorico thinks about music in a very different way. You've got this concept of flows, the fact that the music is very malleable and very flexible. You know, obviously we included already the play mode, which is sort of sequencer style view. Um, and also we had our our frames view, our, our engrave mode with all the graphics frames and text frames and music frames that again build some of those features of a, a desktop publishing app. So it was all that was kind of the the overall application framework and then you know over the course let me interrupt yeah. just a moment with the play mode you guys are in the same company as cubasis did you guys get any help uh, code wise with the play mode being a, like a little cubasis within dorco or is that completely different code that you're just inspired by that look yeah it's it's completely different code we we do we do try to um share things you know both in both directions as it were you know if there's stuff that we write that can be useful to other teams we we try to share it and vice versa but although we although play mode um you're right it does look a bit like cubasis and especially on the ipad it looks very much like cubasis um and we definitely when we came to doing the ipad version and we actually that was kind of like if you like it's play mode version two as it were because we'd already built play mode in the desktop version you know years ago and when we did the ipad version it was we had felt for a while that play mode i mean it's one of those things where in that summer of 2016 before the first version came out there were you know that was the tough summer in that early period where we where we had to make some decisions that if we'd still had you know a, a clock that was maybe ticking but not ticking with urgency down towards a deadline we would have done a bit differently and play mode is one of those things where we had a, a prototype that was decent but you know was a prototype and that prototype basically then ended up being play mode for the first for the next four years <laughs> and so one of the things that we really wanted to do when we started working on the ipad version was to um you know we knew that people who were familiar with obviously those kinds of editing operations from sequences and so on they found dorico's play mode pretty clunky um and missing a lot of the kind of quality of life things and affordances that you get in a nice mature piano roll editor and what have you so when we started working on the ipad version we we knew that certainly the current play mode even technically wasn't really going to work on the ipad so if we were going to maintain that aspect of the app on the new platform that was one of the things that we really needed to work on um, and in fact I, I would say that play mode and the mixer um, are the things that actually we worked on the most for the ipad version in terms of actually writing stuff from scratch uh, we had to we had to use a new audio engine um, we've never built an audio engine ourselves or any of our apps so for dorico on the desktop we use the cubase audio engine which the team in hamburg um, work very hard on kind of pulling all of the all of the UI stuff off it and and giving it to us in a way that we can consume it within within Dorico and the Cubasis team then also did the same job for us with uh with the iPad version so the desktop version of Dorico uses Cubase for its engine and the iPad version uses Cubasis for its engine which is which is great and we're yeah. we're very fortunate but all of the UI that we've built um even though we we were certainly inspired by Cubasis because of course Cubasis has been on the App Store for nearly a decade now and so that experience of using that that piano roll editor and, and that sort of overview page has been honed by 
you know, tens of thousands of users feedback over the years. So it certainly seemed to us that we wanted to benefit as much as we could from the from the hard work in terms of user experience that had gone in there. Um, and certainly when we actually, you know, we, we did sit down and try to work out from first principles, right? So when you're doing things like lengthening a note or changing the pitch of a note or whatever in a piano roll editor, how would that be most naturally done with with a touch interface and what we found was that cubasis had just kind of cracked it basically all of that stuff was just great on cubasis and so we definitely used that as a as an inspiration but um even though we're using a lot of cubasis engine code uh, all of the ui code is actually is actually completely rebuilt from scratch for dorico okay something i would love to see one day with dorico as far as the mixer is using the mixer as a way to kind of perform just a rudimentary dynamics run of your music where you're mixing Absolutely. and it translates up. You could even use like a piano pedal to like when you're uh, compressing that over Bluetooth, it tells the mixer, don't make this crescendo or decrescendo, just like, you know, have this invisible for a second so it can blast up when i release the pedal to a new dynamic kind of thing yeah definitely i mean i think automation even though you know dorico has on the ipad at the moment right now of course only has the the main piano roll editor and the velocity editor but in the next version we'll obviously be reintroducing the um continuous controller editor as well and so automation in as much as you know if you've got a rotary control or a fader on a midi device you can record that automation by just recording you know but i agree it would be it would be really tremendous to be able to map a software fader to a controller and then kind of ride that in real time and then have that recorded as either directly as a channel volume thing if you really want to do that and you want to automate the output in the mixer but but i think also as a means of of effectively kind of a software a software fader or rotary control like we have a software keyboard, basically, so that you could you could do that on screen without needing an external device. So, yes, I hope in the future we'll absolutely build some features like that, um, which will be both on the desktop version and on the iPad version. So what other big things were added to the app over the years? I know film scoring mode is something in the Pro version today. I'm not sure what other big things were added over the years. Yeah, so that was... The video feature was something we added pretty early. We added that in version 2 of Dorico on the desktop. Um, and... It was, again, we, we just had this opportunity where Cubase already, of course, has video support. Um, it has soundtrack support, audio track support, and so on. So it was one of those things where the team in Hamburg were re-engineering the video engine, um, moving to a new kind of a new kind of build of the engine and so on. And that was a good opportunity for us to to grab hold of it and, and use it in Dorico. So that was one of the big features of Dorico 2. Dorico 3's big feature was, was condensing, which is a pretty unique feature. Um, no other software really has anything quite like condensing. And, you know, so well, what's condensing? Is that a chemical process? But <laughs> what we mean by that is um, that if you if you imagine that you've got a score for a reasonably large ensemble, you know, where you've got multiple people playing similar instruments, so you've got, say, four horns or three trumpets or four saxophones, whatever it might be, um, then oftentimes when, when conductors read from those scores, they would prefer to see what you might call a French score or a short score, where music for individual players is kind of splatted down together onto a smaller number of staves so your four horns might be on two staves for example horns one and three and two and four or maybe even all four horns on one stave if they're if they're playing in unison for example and likewise you know three trumpets might be two trumpets on one stave and a third on another stave and this kind of thing and um 
obviously people produce scores like that using music notation software, but it's an incredibly laborious process, or at least was until Dorico 3 came out in 2019, um, because you have to, you know, the software, none of the other programs really have an idea that the music that is played by an instrument that is then meant to be held by a player is kind of divisible in some way from the stave on which it appears. Whereas in Dorico, the stave on which the music appears is a kind of, again, it's like bar lines. It's a transitory thing. It's calculated fairly late on. So because of the way that Dorico thinks about music, we can have these separate streams of music for your four horns, for example. And then when we actually come to lay the music out, we can then decide, oh, well, actually, let's put the music for in this particular passage on this system, say, on this page, let's put the music for horns one and two on this stave and three and four on this stave, and we can then figure out whether or not the music can be shown in unison or whether it requires um, rhythmic unison, but the notes are actually, you know, two note heads to a stem or whether it really needs to be written with independent voices, stems up and stems down, you know, as long as the lower player doesn't cross over the higher player and this kind of thing. And those are all decisions that a human editor will not only have to make, you know, making the decision is only half the battle, because then you actually then have to to munge the music edit the music in such a way that you have say an extra stave in finale or sibelius that is horns one and two as separate from your horn one stave and your horn two stave and then you have to manually copy and paste it and hide it on each system and then imagine then trying to prepare a part from that kind of score you're in you're in big trouble so the really revolutionary thing that condensing allows is that it's it's a kind of dynamic way of taking the music that you've written unambiguously for all of the players in the ensemble and then squishing it down onto a smaller number of staves so that you can have an easier to read score where the music is going to be bigger where the staves are going to be bigger you know the number of conductors who have to perform premieres for example for new works on a3 or 11 by 17 paper where the stave size is absolutely titchy because it's so laborious to produce a condensed score that would allow the stave size to be 25 or even 50 percent bigger because the software tools just don't make that job easy and so Adding that in in Dorico 3 was uh, the culmination of, by that stage, gosh, well, we'd done probably two or maybe even three years' work on it in the period before Dorico 1 came out, and then we had to kind of put it down. Um, And then we certainly did another solid year or more's work on it in the run-up to Dorico 3. So, you know, it's kind of five years-ish of engineering and research and development work to deliver that feature. Um, And again, I'd be, you know... Never say never, but it's one of those features that I think is so difficult to do, not because it's um, impossible to reason about. It's just you you really have to have that in mind when you're designing the way that your software is architected to be able to implement that. And that's why I think that it will take a long time, if ever, before any of the other existing notation and composition programs can provide a feature like that to the level that Dorico does. Obviously, Finale has something very basic where you can kind of create a part that sort of splits out voices bar by bar or takes the top note or the lower note for two players and this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But Dorico is not in any way limited like that. You could even have 16 horns on 
on one stave if you wanted to in Dorico and it could it could cope with it so it was um, it was a really massive effort and it was one of those things again that we had dreamed up right when we conceived of Dorico in its in its original form um, and we really wanted it to be part of, of version one but it just became clear that we had so much stuff that we still had yet to build that our ambitions to include that in the first version were going to have to be put on hold um, rather like doing an iPad version to be <laughs> honest and so um, it then came back in Dorico 3 and then 3.5 which came out in May of last year 2020 um, that was really again kind of it was a smaller release than 3 it actually came only about nine months after Dorico 3 because we tried to get onto a kind of springtime um, release cycle because that works quite well for our key education customers they're sort of just in the northern hemisphere at least they're sort of thinking about the next academic year around may june time and about budgeting and all the rest of it and so we like to have something new uh, for them to think about buying around that time of year um, and so we made the move to to have a short gap between three and 3.5 in the hopes that we would then have four out in this past may in 2020 <laughs> but of course you can see how that turned out uh, but 3.5 contains um, the speedy entry alike feature that's a feature that we hear a lot about from finale users where you can kind of noodle around on your keyboard and then only actually input your music once you've chosen a duration which is sort of the opposite of the way that dorico had worked up to that point we also added figured bass support i have to say i'm so happy and glad that that is in 3.5 and on the ipad because that's uh, as a finale user that's what i would do i would have my midi keyboard yeah. be improvising and then oh that's what i want that's what you know, i want let me hit the button and input that absolutely uh, and if it's one of those things where you know if we'd if we'd had more time we probably would have put it in sooner it was never like oh we don't think this is a good input method um we we knew even from our experience of working on sibelius that it you know it was something we implemented in the last major version of sibelius before before we left there um so it was always something that we we wanted to do but again we it's sort of just took a while to get to the point where where we felt that was the thing that we could focus on but it, yeah it's been very well received that feature and i think again it's it's been kind of the last thing that some finale users needed to be there because it's just like it's muscle memory isn't it yeah. for a finale user of long standing uh, so yes it was important to get that in and that was one of the big things in 3.5 and then since then you know as i say we originally had planned to have version 4 out earlier this year but not only because of the pandemic although the pandemic certainly did have an impact on things but just because of the there was uh, some big big technical stuff of various kinds in terms of obviously apple announced last summer that they were or summer of 2020 i should say that they were planning on transitioning from intel to their own apple silicon stuff so that was one thing dorico was built on the cute framework and they were also in the middle of their first sort of major version transition in a decade um, we at steinberg are also working on um, a successor to the aging e-licensor sort of system that all of our software products on the desktop have used for getting on for 30 years now um and so that you know that's obviously a massive project and actually several members of our team have been directly involved you know it's been it's been really good cross-functional effort across the company with people from all sorts of different areas of the company coming together to work on that project um over the last i mean yeah more more than a year now yeah um of real actual implementation work and that will that will also be be sort of bearing fruit fairly soon and in fact as we record 
in a few days there'll be there'll be some information about that arriving on our website um so you know lots of things kind of ended up coming along that that sort of threw our original schedule into into disarray but that was actually what gave us the opportunity to then finally prioritize the ipad version because we were going to be you know we could have decided to just add more and more features to dorico 4 or you know, whatever it was, you know, there were lots of other ways we could have chosen to spend our time. But we decided that um, at this particular moment, it felt like now was the right time to um, take basically half of the team, leaving really only two or three people working on the desktop version at that point, because the others were working on the licensing projects, and basically devote most of our available development resources to uh, to the iPad version. Um, and you know, we started in, I guess, I mean, really, we started properly in January of 2021. Um, and we yeah. were and then we shipped in at the end of July, but we did do a little bit of preparatory work at the end of 2020. Um, and so, yeah, that's really, an, that's really what we've been working impressive, on. Uh, doing that in seven months. <laughs> the QTE uh, framework, the huge framework, uh, how easy is that and malleable is that to, to make a, this app available on iPad OS and what kind of limitations has your team found itself running against? Like, are certain OS level features not as easy to talk to? Like, for example, keyboard yeah, shortcuts. That, that's like that. that's really that's really the tricky thing. With I mean, Qt is amazing, and there's a reason why. You know, of the if you want to say there are four big music notation programs, there's MuseScore, there's Sibelius, there's Dorico, and there's Finale. And, and Qt is the technologies behind three of them. Um, and I think there's a reason for that. Finale being the one that isn't based on yeah. Qt. Um, you know, if you're if you're a, a relatively small team trying to build a rich, sophisticated, document-based cross-platform application, and you don't want to build everything multiple times or build or spend most of your de- development time on building a framework to make that possible, Qt is really the only game in town. And so it's wonderful. It's powerful. It's, you know, it's obviously itself the, the product of, of decades of work by, you know, teams of, of various, you know, it's had various kind of corporate overlords over the years but you know it's been pretty continuously worked on since the 90s you know and it's great it's really really good but the downside of any cross-platform application framework is that you are then you know if you then want to get at the at the particular capabilities of any of the target platforms if the team building the framework haven't chosen to uh, make a um a sort of a, a wrapper, an API that allows you to get at those system level things. It's not there. It's simply not there. Yeah. So you know, there's a whole bunch of things that that Qt doesn't allow you to do that are platform specific across all of the platforms that it targets. Because, of course, it's trying to give you the ability to create a reasonably consistent user experience across all of your platforms. Um, but the downside of that is that then. You know, it does have support, for example, for what they call a tablet event, but it's not quite the same as using the Apple Pencil, using a, a native, the native Apple APIs. You know, it gives you access to the file system, but it's not the same as using Apple's native files stuff and so on. So the um, the, the benefits are there. You know, there's no way a team of our size, which is really only eight developers, there's no way that we would be able to develop an app of the scale and sophistication of Dorico for three platforms without Qt. But um, the cost of doing that is that um, there are certain sacrifices that we have to make, you know, or certain things that are significantly harder to do on one of those platforms 
than if we were writing just for that one platform and so that's the that's then the challenge is how do we balance um the fact that obviously you know with good reason users have expectations about things that should behave a certain way on each of the platforms they use the software on um and you know in lots of cases cute helps us and, and gives us the ability to create a reasonably consistent experience that is both easy for us to write and also works reasonably closely to how the end user would expect on that platform but when you have something that's really really unusual like the way that ipads handle file management or sharing you know inter-application sharing or apple pencil or something like that then or even push notifications or something like that then um then you're kind of on your own and then of course at that point you know it's not necessarily that the that the job is is difficult you know we've done quite a lot of ios specific bits and bobs you know whether it's sharing whether it's in-app purchase whether it's you know various things like that file management and so on we've implemented stuff on our own but obviously there's there's a limit to how much we can do you know it's it's all opportunity cost as we like to say in, in the business everything we decide to do means that we can't decide to do everything else that we could have done instead. Right. And so it's prioritization and, and decision-making, um, and that's very hard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, some of the big ones for me that I I hope you can figure out a way to extend Cute is uh, with the trackpad being able to magnetize towards the icons, and also the trackpad on iPad is able to transform in the whatever shape you want to be. So I'd love the ability for the transform when I'm on the staff to like tell me which note... I'm on which you know ledger line I'm on and stuff like that that would be really great and then also the keyboard shortcuts holding down command and somehow talking to the that <laughs> feels like thousands but probably hundreds of keyboard shortcuts that you can customize on iPad and it's great they're all there but it'd be nice to have that little overlay to tell you what's what I agree yeah I mean we and we did look into that um when we were when we were working on it but it was it was just not going to be it was going to be something that was going to take us you know in the order of weeks to do yeah. and we we just decided that at that point um, it was going to be we could spend our attention uh, better in in other areas but no I mean I, I completely agree even the fact that you can't do a two fingered scroll on the trackpad um, is annoying and that's because um, Cute doesn't kind of recognize it at least not the version of Cute that we're using right now and again there's this sort of whole big transition going on in cute world as well which is uh which is something that we um and i'm sure all of the other vendors who are building applications on cute are kind of also making these difficult judgments at the moment about when is the right time to jump onto this major new version right which you know doesn't necessarily introduce any more specific platform specific functionality in, in a big way but just kind of approaches some of the key things like how input events from either the touchscreen or the keyboard or a mouse or a trackpad or whatever there's lots of changes in that very very fundamental area for example that i think will give us um the opportunity to to enrich that experience across both you know windows with touchscreens and ios and so on in the future uh, but it's it's you know as they as the saying goes I, I guess you have this this saying um in the states as well you can't make an omelet without breaking some eggs and so these things are never a straightforward upgrade you know if you want to move to a major new version of anything um, and it's just as true for those of us building software as it is for you know, end users who are deciding whether to upgrade to, you know, the next big version of Word or Photoshop or whatever, you know, we, we have um, we have to make trade-offs and decisions about what we, what's the right time to kind of jump on these things. Um, so, I mean, the, the thing that I always say to, to our customers is, well, luckily, that wasn't the last version we'll ever release. Of course, one day that may well be true, but right now it definitely <laughs> isn't true. So there will be 
you know, future versions of Dorico for iPad, and each new version will, you know, try to add valuable new stuff, um, whether it ends up being tilted more in favour of, you know, app functionality versus sort of platform support stuff will remain to be seen. Um, but, you know, we definitely expect to be spending time on trying to improve the iPadiness of the iPad version as we as we go along. Yeah. So with engraving mode, I'm curious where you see the potential of this mode as far as its free form nature of what it could allow. I'm remembering back to high school, college, I had a, I did a lot of avant-garde kind of composition where I'd have this like five nibbed, uh, a five tip nib, like a staff nib that you dip in ink. Yep. And uh, I nice. would do things like uh, have thicker lines on my staff for indicating dynamics and um, I would even have like circular staves and stuff like that. Is that something that one day could happen with engraved mode doing these kind of like more avant-garde kind of um, outputs? I mean, I definitely think that one of the areas where Dorico is is kind of weak right now is that it's pretty cool with notation up to about 1940, I would say. <laughs> and then when you and then when you get um, all of the mid-century people who were really kind of blowing apart that that sort of centuries-old convention of of notation and you know music concrete and tape and you know graphical scores and Cage and Ives and all these people who really, I mean, I know Ives is a bit earlier than that, but you know what I mean? All those people yeah. who really started to to break apart the, you know, the sort of hegemony of how notated music has looked. Um, Dorico is pretty good up until you get to that kind of period and then, and then it sort of peters out a bit. And um, the way that I always like to think about this is that, you know, if we had an app that was incredible at doing curvy staves, but couldn't draw beams, for example, <laughs> then we, we wouldn't have a particularly useful app. Nope. Um, and so it's about, again, it's about sort of targeting. Again, I sort of think of it as like a, if you imagine time on the horizontal axis and then kind of the frequency of particular notations on the vertical axis, there's a big splodge in the middle that goes from about, you know, 1550 to about 1950, let's say, where... The, the sort of notational language is pretty common. And if you go back before 1550, you've got all sorts of lovely things to do with prolations and isorhythms and black and white notation and uh, neumes and all this kind of stuff. And if you go after 1950, you've got cutaway scores and graphical scores and uh, randomness and Lutislavsky frames and, um, you know, Adez's partial tuplets and all, all these wonderful things, right? Yeah. Um, and so obviously over time, we want Dorico to be able to be hopefully just as well suited to you know mozart squarely around end of the 18th century or beginning of the 19th as it is to doing you know masho or something as it is doing um i don't know berio or lutislavsky or someone like that you know so but it's going to take time to to build all those things out um whether we'll ever get to the point where you can have totally freeform circular staves and things i don't know i mean on one level you know it's it's about you know, how general purpose can we make? You know, because if you have a circular stave, then you basically be able to rotate any graphical element. Right. And, you know, for example, drawing a beam at that point becomes not drawing 
a filled path of straight lines, it becomes drawing a filled path of curves. And so, well, that's not that difficult for a computer to do. Maybe not. But of course, it's difficult for us to write because, totally general purpose yeah. algorithms that yeah. can that can produce completely free results that will be trivial for you to produce with a pen. Uh, and even, you know, a little bit time consuming to do with a dedicated drawing program like Illustrator or Affinity Designer or something. Right. But for us to then do something that still maintains some semantic understanding of the music, but gives you that total level of graphical freedom it seems like a pretty tall order and i'm not saying we would never do it but i think that um we there's plenty of stuff that we can do that is a bit more conventional like for example frame notation like cutaway staves like the ability to change the number and the thickness of stave lines on the fly and this kind of thing that would open up a lot of possibilities for expression yeah um, but without going all the way towards making somehow doric of this magical drawing program that also (laughs) is incredibly great at engraving music (laughs) yeah you know i'm not sure there's many tools that could could do that kind of freeformness uh that that i'm looking for and i'd imagine apple pencil could be an interesting tool for engraving mode for some of these um, more interesting concepts of music yes i think so too i think the um i think one of the big challenges with apple pencil is that if you're not going to use it for handwriting the music itself what are you going to use it for um right and... and i found handwriting music with apple pencil just slower even if it's an accurate translation i just the apps that do it and do it well it's still I don't prefer doing it that way. Um, I I'd much rather use Apple Pencil for the cleanup process of let me add uh, dynamics and articulations with the pencil and have it smartly add those to to what's on the page. Yeah, I I think I agree with you there. To be honest, and I've I've tried a number of the different apps that are out there that you know purport to to do handwriting stuff, and of course I have great admiration for the effort and the work that goes into all of those. But for me personally, they just don't work, and I find that. Um, you know, and I've always felt felt this way, really. You know, and I feel the same way almost about MIDI keyboards, almost. Which is that, even though, yeah, okay, it's pretty basic. It's been it's been the same for many decades now. But the fact that we've got when we're using a real keyboard, you've got 102 or 108 buttons in front of you, which can be used in any number of combinations with as many fingers as you can hold down that then allow you to access all of these different features, you know. And the same with, you know, I mean, the piano is a pretty great user interface, right? You want the note and you (laughs) hit that button and there it is. So I think that, you know, using the Apple Pencil to, to write music is probably not the best way to use that as a as a as a kind of modality you know for editing and so on but i i agree with you that i think things like annotation or adding stuff uh quickly or even just using it as a very fine finger you know we we resisted having any kind of ability to place the note directly on the score yeah. in dorico for ipad that was a decision we made made early on and partly that was because we knew that we wouldn't really be able to do any any specific apple support and apple pencil support in the first version um i think that you know a big fat finger placing notes just doesn't work obviously the, the pencil being smaller than the note head that can work so i think that in the future Again, I think it's really contingent on us being able to get, you know, I mean, part of it is that Dorico is a desktop app, right? We spent years building it for the desktop. And so even once we kind of bring it over to the iPad and we spent months, you know, trying to make it more touch friendly in, in lots of ways, there are still lots of things that are not as not 
as easy for us to add touch capability to as we would like and so those things need a bit more of a kind of re-engineering around them and one of those things is actually annoyingly direct interaction with the score view itself uh, because of course it has to do so many different things you have to be able to zoom it you have to be able to scroll it you have to be able to select things input things delete things you have to be able to use your finger your mouse um, a trackpad theoretically the pencil theoretically um, and you know, we when we originally built that whole element, uh, partly Qt itself was not as as well sort of suited to distinguishing between all of those different input methods as it is now. And it would do things like, you know, you touch it with your finger and it would helpfully synthesize a mouse event and tell you, yes, the user clicked the mouse there, for example. Yeah. Um, and so it's those sorts of things that we have to kind of re-engineer um, in order to, to make it possible to differentiate between, in all cases, between touching it with your finger and touching it with a, with a pencil and clicking with a mouse and doing the right thing in every in every situation. So I think that we'll <clears throat> we'll definitely have a richer Apple Pencil experience in Dorico in the future. But it's going to it's going to be contingent on the the pace at which we can, you know, sort all these sort all these things out where, yeah. you know, obviously we we didn't start we didn't at least although we started with the iPad version in mind, we didn't build with with running it on the iPad for all those years. So, you know, there's lots of assumptions you end up making just naturally as you go along that, that then need to be revisited as you as you kind of improve things further, further on down the line. So um, how does Dorico handle pit orchestra music? Is there a way to say this player has access to these five instruments in hot swap between them and tell Dorico... Uh, to switch in the in middle of a, a staff uh, to to go to a different instrument, does um, that concept exist? Absolutely, yes. I mean, it was <clears throat> it was actually one of the very first things that we decided we wanted to make easier than the other programs, and that that's actually the main reason why we have this idea of the of the player in in setup mode. When you when you add music in Dorica, you don't add it directly. You don't just like have a stave, and that stave is flute one or something, as I've already mentioned, because of things like condensing. Dorico's got this sort of rather more dynamic idea about what the music actually is and that goes to players as well so you have you have this notion of a player which corresponds to a human being and you can assign multiple instruments to that human being so you know you've got your multi-read player for example typically in a pit band say and he or she will have multiple you know might be you know take your pick bunch of saxophones and a clarinet or whatever it might be and so you can assign all of those instruments to that player uh, whichever one is under the under their is the first one listed under their name in in the setup panel. That's the first one that will appear in the page. But if you switch to galley view, which is Dorico's version of kind of scroll view or panorama, depending on what term you're familiar with, then you'll actually see all of the staves for all of the instruments held by that player on top of each other there so you'll see clarinet and alto sax and tenor sax or whatever it is and then in galley view you can simply write on whichever instrument you want the player to be playing at that moment in time and then when you switch back to page view dorico will automatically take care of the transitions for you including the labeling any change of click clef or key signature if the instrument transposes by a different interval for example like b flat clarinet and alto saxophone of course have different transpositions so um, it will handle all of that for you automatically um, and all of that's possible on the ipad version too you simply assign multiple players to the um to the play multiple instruments i beg your pardon to the player then switch to galley view and then you can see two or more instruments belonging to that player then you simply write on the one that you want 
that you want them to be playing at that point, and Dorico takes care of everything else for you. And the really neat thing about this is that if you then discover later on that actually the alto sax is going to be played by your reeds two player rather than by mm-hmm. your reeds one player, you can simply, in setup mode, grab that alto saxophone instrument from the one player, drag it to the other, and everything updates instantly. The other part now That's contains all cool. the instrument changes for the. Yeah, it is. It is pretty cool. Because like, <laughs> I imagine like a and... high school pit orchestra is maybe like you thought, oh, this this player might actually do that part, but let's move it over to that other player that's maybe more proficient in this part yeah exactly and it was really again it's all part of this kind of idea that you should be able to there shouldn't be a decision that you make as part of putting together your music that has a a high penalty of time associated with it and you know if you obviously you're very familiar with finale and if you were trying to deal with that kind of doubling situation in finale and then unpick it on the day of the dress rehearsal because it's actually going to be ended up playing played by a different player Ooh boy, you've got some you've got some problems on your hand. You're going to be drinking a lot of coffee and staying up pretty light, late that night to get that done. Whereas in Dorico, you can simply it's literally one or two seconds to drag that to the other player, and then two minutes to check the part still looks good, and you can reprint and you're you're good to go. Yeah. So, how does Dorico handle in piano music? You often have in the same staff like a whole note. And then above it, a series of eighth or quarter notes. I know some applications use the concept of layers, but I don't think layering exists within Dorico. No, that's right. So we we call it voices in Dorico. And um, yeah, you can have as many voices as you like on a staff. One of the things I remember being very amused by when the first version of Windows and Mac came out in 2016 was that the person who wrote the review for scoring notes, <clears throat> sort of preeminent blog of our field, yeah. they uh, they managed to put all all 40 voices from Talis's Speminalium on one stave. <laughs> Which is obviously totally illegible. But, you know, but on the other hand, Dorico did at least make sure that all of the notes were were not on top of each other, so it would arrange them into columns one after the other. So, yeah, Dorico can handle, you know, even classical guitar music where you often have three or possibly even four independent rhythmic voices going along on a single staff. Dorico can handle all of that very easily. So when you're when you're on your piano stay, for example, and you put in your whole note, then you press Shift V or you click in the notes toolbox on the left hand side if you don't have a keyboard attached. There's there'll be a little there's a little note with a plus next to it, and that means to add a new voice, to start a new voice. And you'll then see that the carrot shows the direction of the voice to the bottom left of the orange line. Um, it shows you that okay, it says plus two downstem or something like that. It means mm-hmm. you're starting a new downstem voice. Then you simply play your music in, whether you're touching the on-screen keyboard or using the using your MIDI keyboard, whatever, and Dorico will automatically then, you know, do all do all the things it needs to do. And then once you've got that voice started, to then switch between the upstem voice and the downstem voice, you simply either press V or you'll see that that button that you did have that was a note with a plus next to it in the toolbox now looks like a button with both a stem up and a, st- you know, a, a note with a stem up and a note with a stem down. And that one's the sort of switch between the voices on the stave button. Um, and so that's the equivalent of, of hitting V rather than shift V on the keyboard if you have one attached and so it's very very easy and again like you already mentioned earlier on tim the nice thing about using note input in dorico is you don't have to worry about uh, about rests and so actually for example dorico will cleverly not bother showing rests for that second voice in the bars where it doesn't appear at all for example so you don't need to worry about having lots of extra rest to deal with and of course you never basically need to input a rest in dorico because as you as you so rightly said you simply position the carrot at the place where you want the note to appear 
and Dorica will work out whether any rests need to be added and do it for you. But it is worth saying that sometimes, of course, when you're doing, like, if you're doing, say, a short choral score or something, you might normally be writing, say, soprano and alto on one stave, and you're normally writing it in one voice. But then, say, the altos have a passing note, and you just want to show a pair of eighth notes for that third beat of the bar or something. In that case, Dorico will, by default, um, pad the rest of the bar with rests for that downstem alto you know, beats that you've got there. And so in, in that situation, you can then select, <clears throat> you can do it either one of two ways. You can either select the rest themselves that you don't want to appear. And on the iPad, you open the little contextual menu that's in the secondary toolbar, the little um, dot, dot, dot button on the secondary yeah. toolbar. And then you can choose re- remove rests from in there. Or you can use the properties panel instead, which some people prefer to do. And you can basically say that that first note in the alto, the downstem one, that that one starts the voice, which means that any rests before that will be removed. And then that second note, you can say that it ends the voice and then any rests after that note in that in that voice will be will be hidden from that point. And then as soon as you then start that voice later on again, then of course Dorico then feels free to, to start adding rests at that point again. So um, <clears throat> yeah, it's, it's very it's very very flexible when it comes to that kind of thing and and we put a lot of time into making sure that even complex figurations of voices you know lots of different nasty things where you've got you know a chord in one voice that's got an octave span and then another note in the middle kind of tucks in the middle and the way that engravers would actually do to try to make that music as compact horizontally and still legible and clear so you can see the passage of the voices through there but you're also not kind of finding that notes that are meant to sound together are suddenly graphically spread apart a lot on the page you know we spent a lot of time working on algorithms to try to you know pair up voices and really interlock them in such a way that it produces a nice compact result and i think you know there's no tool that does as good a job as that automatically obviously human editors can still disagree about the exact solution that you end up with but again in the spirit of you just type in the music and dorica will at least make sure that it's totally legible um dorica does a much better job of that than than anything else out there okay as far as inputting notes that are high up in ledger lines, is it best to do like put eight VA and just like input them on the staff uh, traditionally, or like is there some interpretation when it outputs the parts to make it more legible automatically, or what, what's the process there? Yes, I mean the the sorts of instruments where you typically have those kinds of issues are either brass instruments that are written you know written one way in the score and then you know the player might say prefer to read them in a treble clef transposed up by an octave or, or whatever it might be you know because different families of instruments have different conventions so so if it's one of those cases then dorico will <clears throat> will generally handle that automatically in as much as you know you can look at the score in concert pitch and the the instrument will show one clef say and then you look at it in transposed pitch and it will show a different clef and it may also transpose the music by an octave or more like for example you know we're all familiar with piccolos and double basses you know the piccolo is is written an octave lower than it sounds and the double bass is written an octave higher than it sounds and you know so is the guitar and so on um so dorico handles all those things for you but of course there are instruments that have massive ranges like flutes of course go off into the stratosphere and the horn can get pretty high the cello can get pretty high um dorico doesn't automatically decide to show either octave lines or do clef changes um we did think about that but we thought that the the problem with that is that again it's one of the things where it's an automation where um particularly somebody experienced with that instrument may well actually want to make a different decision yeah um you know we could have a rule that says as soon as you get beyond say three ledger lines start using an octave line but 
is that really a good rule? How how many notes should there be higher than three ledger lines before? Because if it's just popping up to one note, you know, on, on a fourth or a fifth ledger yeah. line, then the player doesn't need an octave line for that. And in fact, an octave line would make that much less clear because then suddenly the contour of the phrase would be completely broken by the fact that the highest note is an octave lower than right. the previous notes and this kind of thing. And likewise, the same thing with, with clef changes, you know, how how many notes do you need to get? If you're a cellist, say I was a cellist as a, as a kid, you know, how many notes does it have to be up above middle C before you start using the tenor clef, you know, mm-hmm. uh, which only after all moves things moves things down by you know a couple of stave stave positions anyway. So, so we don't do anything automatic in those areas, but we do provide reasonably detailed tools so that if, for example, you know that the player is going to want to see one thing, but the conductor or the person you know managing the ensemble, the MD or whatever, wants to see something different, then there are pretty good tools for for choosing you know, things either to appear only when you're in transpose pitch rather than concert pitch or only in the part layout versus the full score. So you've got a lot of control, but Dorico doesn't second guess. As as I've said a couple of times, it's important for us that we automate the things that you definitely would do yourself. But as soon as you start getting into those sorts of things, there's a lot of, you know, even considering, for example, the age of the performer, you know, it might well be that, say, a beginning cellist might be able to find his or her way up the fingerboard into fourth position, reading the bass clef but not be able to read that same music if it was written in the tenor clef because they haven't encountered it yet so there would be a lot of considerations that would have to go into you know when to use an octave line when to make a clef change um so we tend to just say do you know what we don't know the best answer to that so we'll leave that up to you the end users to decide yeah so dorco is available free on ipad with uh, four staffs and there's also a subscription i think it's four bucks monthly or 40 a year which is super reasonably priced uh have you guys considered in the coming years not right away but in the coming years like a pro subscription where you would figure out a way to have film scoring mode in there and doing some of the things that most people probably don't need but a more advanced uh, level yeah we we definitely would like to um i mean we said when we released the ipad version that we would you know we would obviously have to see how it goes firstly steinberg's never done a you know even though we've had cubasis and a number of other apps out in the app store for many years we've never done a subscription um pricing thing before not for a whole app you know there there are some things add-on services like vst connect and so on that you can have for cubase that that are on a pay-as-you-go kind of uh, basis. But we've never done subscription pricing for an app before. And uh, obviously we we want to see, you know, what kind of take-up there is for it. Um, If we were to add another kind of pro-level subscription, we're definitely open to it, but it's we'd obviously need to then be making sure that we're delivering that amount of value to the end user as well. Um, And so a lot of the things that are, you know, quite... There's there's so much stuff in Dorico Pro, for example, that isn't in the iPad version at the moment, whether it's the advanced stuff in engrave mode, whether it's condensing, whether it's um, video, as you mentioned, Tim. You know, there's a lot of features there. And some of those are, you know, are basically UI problem, like the, the engrave mode stuff to do with frames and so on. It's really about making sure that we have good workflows, you know. And, and, and these, I think, these are opportunities for us to improve the desktop version too, for example. You know, things like if you wanted to do a page layout like a... a sort of you know some complex um 
exam paper or worksheet for a classroom or something and you need to mix text and music and so on freely on the page we'd need to make sure that we have smart tools for snapping things into decent positions as you're moving things with your finger and so on and those features would of course then be welcomed by users on the desktop as well but if we were to just kind of enable the desktop workflow on the ipad without trying to put in some affordances that account for the fact that you know you often have frames very close together and if you try and select the handles with your finger there's a decent chance that you might end up selecting the wrong one and this kind of thing um, and some of the ui is very either very numerically based you have to do some things in the properties panel you know so there's a lot of considerations around that something like video of course you know at the moment video actually uses a whole other engine and it's shown in a totally separate window so we then have to find a way of 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 showing that within the dorico window somewhere somewhere that would make sense for that and yeah with video i'm curious if you could somehow finagle the picture in picture mode on ipad os so it would be this little floating window and then also a different mode that a user could be in is external display mode where when they hook up to a monitor that external monitor all shows is the video playing and that uh, there's there are some like creative solutions i think that could be done for for dealing with video but yeah as you said i think there would have to be a little mini display that you at least have to hit the pop out to get picture picture mode initialized uh, to begin with yeah exactly so there's there's some there's definitely some some challenges in in those areas um and so we we have to see you know obviously we've been we've been delighted that you know, tens of thousands of people are using Dorico for iPad. Um, you know, perhaps not as many people as we would ideally like as subscribing yet. And we will be adding some more functionality. You know, when we when we bring out Dorico 4 relatively soon, that will also be accompanied by a new iPad version. And lots of the new features that we are including in Dorico 4 will, you know, where it makes sense, they'll make their way over to the iPad. Some of them will be free. Some of them will be in the subscription version. Um, and, you know, we obviously hope that we'll we'll pick up some more subscribers as we go along what i will say is the people who are subscribing so far they tend to stick around you know that's which is really really good so the people for whom the app is kind of sticky as it were you know where they're actually using it often and they're getting value out of it they they tend to stick around in in the few months we've of data we've got so far which is which is wonderful um but we you know we to make those kind of big investments in in unlocking that pro functionality and kind of rebuilding it so that it would be really useful to to users on on the ipad you know we we need to we need to make sure that we're you know putting our limited resources in in the right area because you know at the end of the day although steinberg is a wonderful company to work for they do nevertheless have certain expectations about um you know we should make some money and this kind of thing (laughs) and you know one of the challenges that we always thought about putting software on the ipad was that obviously we couldn't just sell it on a one-off basis like dorico is on the desktop because there's very very few apps that are at all you know used by large audiences i know there are you know there's medical apps for people in the medical profession there's apps for people in the aviation industry and so on that are you know sort of secret apps that are priced well outside what you or i might ever look at but Mm -hmm. you know musicians on the whole you know then if they've got the choice of using say notion for 15 dollars or you know sibelius for a few dollars a month or whatever if we were to come in and and stick our app up there and say you know even say staff pad which i think is a bargain at 90 90 euros or 90 90 dollars whatever it is but you know that's obviously one of the most pricey apps on the entire store and uh we wanted to really try to open up you know in particular to students to young people you know we want you know my kids 
their first experience of computing was on an iPad. It wasn't on a, on a computer. And I'm sure that's true for millions of, of children in, in, you know, us awful post-capitalist rich Western <laughs> countries and so on. But, you know, there's lots and lots of kids whose first exposure to computing will be on that platform. And we would really like them to be able to experience Dorico on that platform. Yeah. So, so trying to pitch where the product is in terms of who's it really for, you know, and, and how, how high can you go in it, you know, um, in terms of, could a professional who would currently be using Dorico Pro on the desktop, could they really use just their iPad and get their job done? And the answer today, of course, is probably not. But it's not because the device isn't as capable. It's because we would need to really make a concerted effort to say, do you know what? We think parity between these two apps is not only achievable technically, which it is given enough effort, but is going to pay off enough in terms of the um, revenues that we'll see as a result of spending all that time and money building it um, that, that would that would make it make it worth our while and worth our users while and it's just sort of hard to predict really you know we're a few we're a few months in as i say we're we've got lots and lots of users we've got a decent number of subscribers which is great and uh we are hopeful that the you know the the new features that we'll be introducing relatively soon will will be not only useful to people already using the app but also broaden its appeal to people who've maybe given it a try but it hasn't been terribly sticky yet and um you know it's very early days you know dorico's been on the market on the desktop for five years now and for five months on the ipad so so we're we're at a very very early stage but you know we're we're committed to it it's not like we're going to um you know reduce our our focus on it we we see it as now um our third platform alongside mac os and windows and and we hope that you know we'll be able to really build on what we've what we've delivered so far in in a way that will eventually hopefully take it towards the feature set of dorico pro yeah and the free version i'd imagine doing like outreach to schools that are ipad first and like letting them know hey you know if you have a music class this might be a cool tool to look into to adding and then get them while they're young using iPads and um, exactly. you know. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. Um, and it's great to hear that with Dorico Four, a lot of those features will also come to iPad. So I, that was a question I had. Like, as far as development, it sounds like going forward, it will be both. All the platforms are kind of being advanced. Uh, at the same time absolutely yeah so we you know we're we're building this is the wonderful thing about about having queues and so on is that we're literally daily building the same app for windows for mac and for ipad and so um, obviously we can't necessarily you know look at all of them with the same focus from a testing point of view every day and so on but it's there every day you know the latest version with the latest features in it and you know i have an ipad here next to my mac on my desk and i can build the you know build the current development version on it and take a look at it any time and yeah we absolutely do think about the ipad now whenever we're building anything new in the in the desktop version um, obviously most of our developers are primarily you know not all of them even have their own ipads at the moment which is something we'd like to sort of change in the future but you know the, the sort of core handful of us who are working on the ipad version all of this year we've all got ipads on our desks and we're still you know still using them and, and looking at it and so on and it's now you know part of every design consideration uh how how is this going to work on the ipad do we need to do anything special for the ipad version and you know over the coming 
months and years we we anticipate you know kind of re-architecting the effectively the whole app in such a way that it will be easier still to um to make things work on the ipad um and you know it's it's absolutely part of our part of our plans on a daily basis now that's awesome and one of the big updates you guys shipped shortly after the launch was removing the 12 limit uh, staff limit which is what i think elements has with it so um unlimited staves on the iPad, which is the same as the Pro version. And I'm so glad you did this because how I use Dorico mainly is as a music journal. Every month I open up a new project and I add a new flow every day and I'll want different instrument nice. combos. And now I don't need to worry about hitting that 12, uh, 12 limits if uh, one day I want a different set of instruments. That's that's really interesting. I've not heard of somebody using Dorico like that, but that's that's really fascinating. I hope you share some of your doodles one of these days but um yes i mean the 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 main reason that there were two reasons why we didn't go out with that to begin with one was that we just didn't know whether or not that was really what people wanted and i suppose you can say and you know we'd we'd obviously been beta testing it for a while before it was released and we've had a certain amount of feedback from our beta testers about you know but they were all dorico users already you know all those beta testers were people i think with that exception pretty much all of them were people maybe one or two hadn't used dorico but you know the vast majority of them certainly were dorico users and so one of the things that they would naturally expect to be able to do is take their big orchestral projects they'd done on the desktop version and put it on the ipad but we didn't really have in mind that that would be a major use case because you couldn't use the same sounds and you know obviously the fact that the the ipad um, is somewhat more constrained in terms of the maximum amount of ram that you can use and we were also worried that you know really big scores might might cause older ipads in particular just could crash because the memory usage of the score was sufficient that the os would shut it down and the second thing was that you know we we were we were sort of not quite sure how we should pitch it in terms of um you know what should the capabilities be is it confusing if it's different from elements you know if we're sort of saying that the ipad version is with a subscription is roughly equivalent to elements whereas without a subscription it's roughly equivalent to se you know so we but then you know once we released it and of course we were you know just it was the it was the main bit of feedback we got basically <laughs> because that early that early adopter bunch of users were was you know naturally people who were already using dorico and and what was really interesting about that was that it, it then actually gave us an opportunity to sit back and we had some you know we sort of got together and, and had some long chats about what do we what does the player limit really mean like what is the point of the player limit and we we had to really question ourselves about whether we were putting the player limit in because we were worried about making the cheaper versions of the app too functional and so therefore cannibalizing sales of the big app or because we didn't have a clear enough and i think in the end what we decided was we didn't have a clear enough idea about what the customer was actually wanting to do with those with those products and so it really forced a bit of introspection and we we spent you know we'd already sort of started having these conversations before the app was released <clears throat> and then the you know the, the sort of deluge of feedback we got in the days immediately after the release really sort of reinforced this sense and in fact we'll be making some changes to dorico elements as well as a result of that when dorico 4 comes out dorico elements will also be gaining the engrave mode that dorico for ipad has <clears throat> and it will also be gaining a higher play limit so actually you'll be able to do 24 players in dorico elements and um, we decided not to make it completely unlimited um because we think that there's a sort of practical limit to the kinds of scores that you can create with elements if you don't have features like division and condensing and so on but we thought well do you know what there's really no reason why somebody shouldn't be able to do a really good musical theater score for example or a really good 
big band score yeah. or small high school concert band score, for example, with elements. And are we really saying that we don't want those users to be able to complete those projects? Mm-hmm. I think we're not saying that. So if we're not saying that, then we ought to make those those products more functional. And so that's that's what we've decided to do. And and so the, the natural way to do it on the iPad was rather than put any limit in, just say, hey, it's unlimited, but you're still at the mercy of of the RAM limit for the time being. Um, but on for elements, you know, we think that there's still kind of somebody who isn't really writing really large scale band or orchestral works should be able to do that job really well with elements. And and it's given us a new focus on on the on who these apps are for and how we should be serving those users. And I, I think that's been a really positive outcome of of the release of the iPad version was actually to help us refocus on what Dorico Elements could and should be. Yeah, because I know when I was in high school, I was doing concert band work with finale and i i think needing to go the pro as a high school student wouldn't be ideal you know as and that seems like a great uh upgrade the 24 and i think that'll probably accommodate most high school needs of uh, of those kind of works yeah i hope so i hope so we'll see we'll see how it's received when it when it comes in a little while but um you know what i think the the thing is we've also we're open to we're open to, to to more changes if if we need to make them. I think you know we what we've seen is that you know plenty of people are interested in Dorico Pro because it's the you know those are the people who for whatever reason you know they can get a good discount on a crossgrade or an education price or whatever you know they can they can make that work and they want to have the thing they know is at the top of the tree. Uh, but I think that there's still a really important role um, that a program like Elements should be playing, and I think we've not been we've not been thinking about that as clearly as we should have done. And I hope that we're going to go some way to addressing the balance. And you know we can thank the many 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 i mean it's hundreds <laughs> literally mm-hmm. hundreds of people i heard from in the in the week after the ipad version came out um for helping us to kind of bring a bit more focus to that yeah now your pro users can look at all their same scores on the ipad which that seems like a big win as well definitely so uh, with the ram limit something ipad os 15 introduced was you you did the developer basically asking apple for um an entitlement for up to, I think, 12 gigabytes of RAM if you have one of those fancy one terabyte iPad Pros with the M1 chip. Is that something that uh, you think your your team will, will end up doing? Yeah, I mean, I think we would we would like to improve the memory efficiency of Dorico anyway, in general, um, on, on all platforms, which would which would also help, especially on the iPad, because, you know, <laughs> the, mm-hmm. the price for going over your RAM limit on the iPad is very, very high. It's yeah. instant death. <laughs> Whereas on the Mac, of course, or on the Windows, it's just a sort of a, a gentle degradation of, of your system performance and yeah. so on. Um, so, yes, I mean, we certainly, we certainly will think about it. Um, I think that at the moment, you know, on my iPad Air, I'm able to open pretty big scores, um, but I think that what will be challenging is as and when, you know, people, I don't, I, I've got a couple of audio units that I use, um, like a piano and so on that I use with, with Dorico on my iPad. Um, but I think if if we get to the point where um, there are really good viable, and of course they could come from us at Steinberg as well, I, I very much hope that they will, some improved sounds um, that will obviously, they will increase the ram overhead of the app as well as opening a big score so i think that you know it's certainly it's certainly possible that we will that we will go to apple and investigate um, whether we're allowed to have that entitlement Um, but at the same time i don't want us to just take that and say good don't need to worry about how memory efficient dorico (laughs) for ipad is anymore because of course you know it really would then be only the very top of the range you know 
iPad Pros and so on that have more RAM right. than, say, my yeah. iPad Air does. Um, and we don't want to... We want to be... You know, it, having that RAM limit keeps us honest, in a way. Um, and I, I think that, you know, hopefully, for the time being you're probably not opening up your big 50 stave or 60 stave orchestral work because you really think that working on it on the iPad, you know, because I don't think we're there yet in terms of the user experience of of really managing a score of that scope on a display that small, for example. You know, I don't think we've necessarily cracked all of the problems that need to be solved there to make that a really productive working environment. It's useful to be able to see that score and to look at the parts and, and all the rest of it, but I can't really imagine people starting their next, you know, Mahler sized orchestral work in the iPad version. And so I, I feel like um, the use cases are, you know, they're going to take a bit of time to shake out in terms of what do people really want to open those or, or work on those really, really big projects for on the iPad. And if it really is the case that people want to write their, their next 70, 80 stave masterpiece on there, um, and we hear that a lot from people, then that's one thing. But I, I think that it's more likely that people are wanting to be able to, you know, look at the parts easily for their big score rather than necessarily sit down and have a really strong, like, hour composition session where they're going to write the next, you know, 32 bars of, of the fourth movement of their symphony or something. Yeah. But we'll see. You know, we, we hear a lot of feedback from our from our users, which is great. And, you know, it's really it's really user feedback that will guide um, how we how we go. But as I say, I think not going straight for that big entitlement will keep us honest and it will it will keep us focused on ensuring that you get a good experience with you know not a 16 gigabyte ipad pro m1 <laughs> right, if we yeah. can if we can manage it so external display support this is something i'm very curious about the ability to hook up your ipad to like a big monitor and i'm envisioning like a day where your ipad when it's hooked up it could become just a virtual instrument like a piano in front of you and on the big screen is where dorico really lives and you have basically a 16 by 9 aspect ratio fills the whole screen takes advantage of all those pixels is that something you see one day like the ipad transforming from this tablet interface to like you're basically at a desktop with the touchscreen in front of you to do touchy things, you know? Yeah, it's it's really interesting, isn't it? I mean, I think um, <clears throat> I don't know how easy that will be for us to do in the in the near term, in to, you know, because we don't have access, direct access to all of Apple's nifty APIs for these things, you know. But I think that it, it's, it's certainly an intriguing prospect, isn't it? Because, you know, I mean, I think um, <clears throat> one of the things that we've also talked about in the past is, you know, what would it be like to use the iPad as a companion to using the software on the desktop anyway? You know, yeah. like what what if what if we use the iPad as a kind of second screen experience, like you say, either for an on-screen instrument or maybe for contextual help or for the mixer or something like that? Yeah, I think there are there are some very intriguing possibilities for um, you know either bringing the iPad in as a as a complement to the desktop or as you say, driving an external display from an iPad. You know, I, I think that. Um, the possibilities will will be you know governed by you know what's practical for us to do but you know i i dare say there's plenty of gpu grunt inside today's ipads to drive a big 4k display with a totally independent set of things than what you're seeing on the built-in screen um, and it'll just be a question of how practical it is for us to be able to access all that power yeah so towards wrapping up here uh shortcuts is now on mac and does that feature on Mac, that app on Mac, make it something more attractive to you to, to kind of look into for iPad 
as um, a thing to do? We've, I'll be honest, we really haven't investigated shortcuts at all. Um, I think that it is... And I, and I must say that even though I'm a you know died in the wall Mac user, I've not and I've been using Monterey since the betas earlier in the summer. I've really not spent any time um, to kind of experiment with ways that it could speed up tasks that I that I do often. So I really don't kind of I don't know what we could do um, there that would be useful. I'm sure there are lots of things. I mean, automation in in general is something that you know, we haven't really been able to spend a huge amount of time on in Dorico so far. One of the things that we've been working on recently is is an API that would allow um, external applications to control Dorico via a WebSockets interface, yeah. um, which is something that we, you know, because there's already things like the Elgato Stream Deck and MetaGrid and things like that that um, use, you know, that use effectively the existing keyboard shortcuts mechanism to trigger things in Dorico. And we wanted something richer than that. Um, and we'll see whether people are able to build interesting things with that in the future. Um, there's also, of course, Dorico's got its own scripting interpreter built in, which we haven't really yet been able to build a proper api for that because it's you know it's a big job building an api that would expose functionality in a way that is useful and it may well be that in the process of kind of either of those things you know maybe that will lead us down the road towards exposing the app in such a way that then shortcut support you know like because again i think it's about use cases really you know obviously there's the the technical work but yeah for me it'd be uh it'd be templates like setting up certain templates from shortcuts to create a new project with these instruments and have a picker within shortcuts to do all that yeah yeah i mean i think there's certainly you know we we can obviously it's it's again shortcuts for me is interesting because it feels like it's another one of those things that is very iOS-y in as yeah. much as it's a way of daisy chaining operations where you know because the the operating system itself doesn't allow you to kind of easily necessarily or it just takes a different approach to moving between different contexts and moving data between different contexts and so shortcuts kind of seems like a really powerful way of of kind of daisy chaining things that maybe you'd otherwise have to share together or whatever um and you know i think we're definitely interested in it uh, but it isn't something that we've put a lot of a lot of thought into and, and you know it's great to hear that you would find it interesting and helpful to be able to create templates in that way and you know i would encourage you and, and all your listeners to to share with us the ideas that they have for what they would like to do with the shortcuts app if dorica had support for it and you know i think that we will I, i'm hopeful that in in the not too distant future <clears throat> we will be able to put a bit more of a focus on um, on the scripting side of things on the desktop version and and as i say it may well be that at least identifying how that ought to work even if the technical mechanism through which shortcuts are exposed you know is different it may well be that that will also kind of firm up some ways in which we could expose certain units of functionality that would then make natural building blocks for shortcuts in the future yeah one way i am using it today uh already is whenever dorco closes uh iPad OS 15 now allow, allows access to the file system with shortcuts, so I automatically have the local files of the Dorco folder saved automatically to an iCloud folder as a backup, and that does happen. Yeah, just, it's nice. It's 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 great. So every time I close the app, it just automatically saves into iCloud. Yeah, it's obviously, we'll that particular thing will will try and get proper iCloud support in before too long, so that you right. won't have to do that anymore. <laughs> but but yeah, I mean, it's 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 very you know that's the kind of interesting sort of it's on the edges, right? It's yeah. not the app itself, but it's what you do with the with the app in the wider context of how you use the device. And yeah, so great. 
share those ideas with us and and i invite your 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 listeners to do the same we're we're very interested in hearing that and as i say i'm unashamedly i'm a mac first guy because i've been using my mac for for 20 years and i don't have the same personal kind of experience i I have you know this year since i've got my ipad i've tried to you know put my mac down for a day and really really try and do the things that i don't need xcode or whatever for um on my ipad and it's been really interesting to kind of feel feel the the edges of the box as it were but also how you're supposed to get out of the box on the ipad and it's it's just a very different mindset uh and so I'm very, very, you know, very open to hearing from people who've got a lot more experience than I have um, on that platform with the sorts of things that, that match up with their expectations so that we can, you know, put that into the into the mixing pot and, and hopefully come out with something useful in the future. Excellent. Well, uh, two just two final questions to wrap up here. Um, first off, do you have a favorite keyboard shortcut that you find yourself just using all, you know, day in and day out? I do, actually. I do, but I don't know. I don't. Let me just open up my magic keyboard here. Just make sure I know what key it is on here. Yeah, muscle memory um, is uh, different from. Yeah, that's right. It's it's the back tick key, which is the one just to the right of the shift key on, or at least on my keyboard. It might be might have a different symbol on it on on a US keyboard, but it's the one just to the left of the shift key on on the fourth row on the left hand side. Yeah, which is the sort of instant print preview shortcut. And um, basically, when you hold that down, anything that is drawn on the screen, like if you're in engrave mode and you've got frame edges visible and handles for things and selections and all the rest of it, when you hold that key down, it basically hides everything and it gives you... It's something I nicked from FontLab, which is another program that I've spent way too many hours over the years using, you know, working on Bravura and so on. And the nicest thing about FontLab is those three keys at the bottom left-hand corner of the keyboard, Z for zooming in, X for zooming out, and the back tick key for previewing and that set of three keys it took us a while because we didn't add this feature until dorico 3.5 but we always had z and x for zooming in and zooming out um because you know i'd spent two years prior to dorico coming out using font lab day in day out and i just developed a real love of zooming in and zooming out with using those keys yeah but then adding the back tick key was the was the final missing piece because then you're looking at something detailed and engraved mode and there's a load of handles or maybe you've got the you know whatever it is you've got a selection and you just want to see it exactly as it's going to be on the printed page you just for the duration that you hold down that key all the invisible stuff that won't print all the non-printing stuff goes away from the screen and then when you let go of the key it comes back again and as i say i totally brazenly stole that from font lab because it's my favorite keyboard shortcut in font lab uh but it's also my favorite in dorico as well and then i lied there's actually two more questions after this uh uh, <laughs> uh when i'm in write mode something i encounter a lot is i want to play at a certain measure and it, yes. it seems that it's kind of hard to tell it to not play from the beginning, but I want to use like my trackpad to just tap on a measure to play from there. Is is there a way to do this without pulling up the little um, panel at the bottom, uh, the little Cubasis thing? Yeah, so you, you should be able to, to just select a note, and then once you've got a note or a bar line or whatever selected, then just hit the play button on the toolbar and it will play from play from the selection. Okay, that, that, that sounds super simple. Okay, cool. <laughs> and then uh, final question. Uh, is there a certain feature in Dorco that just makes you smile every time you kind of use it and realize this is something that you kind of helped create and, and do? Oh, gosh. I mean, there's so many, actually. I mean, uh, one of the, the nicest things about working on Dorico is that <clears throat> I work with such clever people. You know, we can sit around as a group and, and talk about these, you know, really sort of elaborate ideas for for how, how something 
could work and, and how that could be useful to, to musicians and someone who are using the software. And then to sort of day by day see that take shape and then actually to then be able to use it, <clears throat> I, I just think it's it's phenomenal. Uh, and I think the thing that I the thing that gives me the consistently the most pleasure in Dorica is actually popovers, um, which is the the little kind of and it's a different we use the word popover in dorico to mean something different than ios means for yeah. popover of course in ios it's kind of anything like a share sheet or a little semi-modal dialogue that pops up and then you do something and then you tap away and it closes or, or whatever but for us we we kind of stole that term and totally <laughs> changed its meaning for dorico to mean a little texty thing that pops up when you when you trigger a keyboard shortcuts that allows you to create more or less anything in dorico by just typing a simple you know sort of text representation of it um and you know it was it was driven by originally a desire to to basically make it possible on the desktop version to to do everything with the keyboard and to to use the mouse as little as possible um and there are some things coming in in dorico 4 in the shift i popover which is um the sort of we used to call it the add intervals popover which is why it had the shortcut i i love this popover by the way i use this all the time <laughs> Yeah, it's it's pretty great. And, you know, it's really, really nifty to be able to do things like do shift I and then three, five, flat seven, return. And it builds you, you know, sort of a bunch of major seven chords, dominant seventh chords on top of your notes that are there, you know, in one go and so on. But some of the things that my colleague Michael um, has built over the last, I mean, they, they were actually sort of included by accident in the first iPad version. We took them out again. But there are, <laughs> there's a whole load of really, really cool um, musical transformation features that are coming in Dorico 4, which will also be in Dorico for iPad, that you can access via the Shift I popover, and they are delightful. They, um, I won't spoil the surprise yeah. any more than that, but just to say that you know, there's also other ways of accessing them via via dialogues and so on. You'll be able to get at them via the context menu on the secondary toolbar, but you can just open the Shift I popover, and there are so many ingenious things that you can type into there that will transform the music in in various very very interesting and useful ways, um, and that does really give me a lot of delight when I use it. So popovers in general, but the Shift I popover in particular, I I think is it's kind of like the Swiss Army knife of Dorico, and it's it's really really cool, and it's only going to get considerably cooler in Dorico Four. That's great to hear. Anything else about Dorica that we haven't covered that you'd like to before we wrap it up? Gosh, I don't think so. I mean, you know, you know me. I could talk all day and all night about Dorico, but um, it's probably best that you shut me up, really. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, where can people find more information about Dorico? Great. Yes. So if you want to find out about Dorico, the best place is just to go to dorico.com. That will take you to the, the main product page on the on the Dorico website, on the Steinberg website. Um, you can find from there a special... Um, trial download page there's all sorts of feature comparisons there's videos there's all sorts of stuff so that's where you should start if you want to find out more particularly about the ipad version you can either just go to the app store and search for dorico or you could go to in your browser you can go to dorico.com slash ipad that will take you to a special page that um, has some extra tutorial sort of content and, and shows you the ipad version in particular um, i would also recommend that you check out our youtube channel which is at youtube.com slash dorico there's so many um really really useful videos on there and my final recommendation would be to uh, follow us on social media either on twitter at dorico official or on instagram at dorico um, because 
particularly on there every week on Tuesday, my colleague Anthony, who um, who works on a lot of the, well, I mean, his his day job, as it were, is, is to do all the user experience and user interface stuff in, in Dorico on all platforms. But he's also um, the, the chap who's done all of the amazing work on our YouTube channel um, and does all of the tutorial videos. And every single Tuesday, almost every single Tuesday, he does a little one-minute-long um tip video called tips tuesday which we post on our social media and they're all actually archived as well on the dorico blog which you can find at blog.dorico.com and there's now 150 of them uh, the last several months have been focused around the ipad version um, and so there's you know 30 ish minutes of really really helpful just little tiny here's how to do a single task in dorico for ipad videos they're really really good um and uh, my very, very last thing that I will say is if you have any feedback about Dorico or if you want to talk to other Dorico users or you want to get the attention of us and the development team, you can find us on social media. But by far the best place is to come to the forum. Um, I'm on there every day of the year, come rain or shine, Christmas Day included, because <laughs> I'm because <laughs> i don't <laughs> well yes I, let's not go into why i'm on there on christmas day but anyway i am often to be found there christmas day new year's day my birthday you name it i'm there um but there's also not only a great community of, of dorica users who are using it across different platforms including the ipad version but also that that is a, a place where we in the development team really do listen to our users we'll we'll take the feedback wherever we get it but it's really really great to have it on the forum where um, we can also share that with other users we can get a lot of different perspectives um, and if you have any feedback for us about the iPad version, if you have any requests, if you want to talk about shortcuts or external displays or anything else that you would like to see in the future, the Apple Pencil, whatever it might be, um, please do come along to the forum. And again, the, the easiest way to get there is dorico.com slash forum, which will redirect you to the right page. Um, and yeah, I think that's probably more than enough. <laughs> Excellent. And yeah, those one minute tip videos have been fantastic. I've been watching those as they go through my timeline and when I first got in the Dorico, I was watching those old um, YouTube videos about the Mac app because it, it is like the desktop app on iPad. So a lot of that stuff translates super well for just knowing how to use Dorico in general. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. And obviously we, we what we will do as we kind of come back and we'll come back around and refresh some of those older videos because partly because the app is so much richer and more um you know more functional than it was you know like there's a, there's an old series on note input that doesn't take into account half of the amazingly cool things you can do with note input, including of course our favorite shift eye popover yeah um so there's all sorts of stuff that we need to to redo and as we redo those we'll try to make it applicable to all three platforms to windows to mac os and to ipad os so that um no matter what platform you're using dorico on you'll find all the help that you need um on our youtube channel so yeah, please do check it out. It's um, a huge amount of work goes into that, just like goes into building the app. Um, but we do it all because we hope it'll be it'll be helpful to our to our users. And you know, please do let us know if there's anything that we haven't done that you would like to see, or if there's um, anything that uh, that could be clearer, or anything like that. We're we're always uh, we're always listening. So please do come tell us how you find it. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time, Daniel. This has been such a fun chat, and it's been great so thank you again it's my pleasure anytime uh so yeah maybe maybe after dorico 4 emerges onto the scene we can we can do it again yeah sounds good great thanks tim well that's my interview with daniel all about dorico my thanks to daniel for his time recording this interview and my thanks to you for your time and touch and tuning in as a reminder you can support this podcast at patreon.com slash ipad pros or by subscribing to the ipad pros channel in the apple podcast app Thank you to everyone that currently or has in the past financially supported the show. 
Every dollar is greatly, greatly appreciated and really does go a long way in helping out with the production of this podcast. With that, I'll talk to everyone again real soon.